This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. It's my very great pleasure to welcome Matthew Lutton, the co-CEO and artistic director of Malthouse Theatre Company, back into Triple R. Matt, always a pleasure to catch up. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you've recently launched season 2019. Um, And I guess one of the things I'm always curious to know about when compiling a season is, like, some people will work thematically, some people will just go kind of like we're Mm. we're mapping out 50 different potential shows and and what falls in. How conscious are you of what's being programmed interstate, not just the co-productions that Mm. might appear, but kind of are you responding to work that's being programmed interstate are you aware of kind of themes and groundswells and movements and so on that happen in the theatre sector around the country when you come to put a a season together oh look I think we're certainly aware of we're in conversation with the other companies I mean it always starts with a conversation with lots of local artists I mean we sort of build up a really big repertoire of ideas I guess with local artists first to see you know where we want to guide the season Uh, and then there's always these conversations we have with other interstate companies where you suddenly find uh, alignments and suddenly realise there's the same same projects floating around in different states um, or vastly different ideas. I mean, it's interesting, like watching in Sydney, there's a sort of swell of um, Australian classics suddenly appearing uh, on Sydney stages, you know, and so there's a... There's a I, I'm curious to see... There's a conversation within the arts community, but I don't know whether that conversation extends to an audience between Melbourne and Sydney. Um, there's always a lot of conversation about new writing and about which uh, writers... Uh, uh, the companies are sort of hoping to see on their stages the following year and who we can support to get that work around as many cities as possible. Now, speaking of Sydney, I have to ask, did you get up to see the uh, uh, kind of STC production uh, that Kate Mulvaney recently uh, yeah, I did. A- adapted? Yeah, I went up the to Harp see, in the South. I went up to see the Ruth Park Harp in the South. It felt like a necessary, Im- important thing to see before we make Cloud Street next year. Yeah. So um, it was wonderful, actually. I mean, what was so great is to that experience of sitting in the theatre for a long-form piece of storytelling that, you know, is t- you get to be there. In that case, I think it's about six hours. Cloud Street's a bit shorter. It's about five. Uh, but the community, the emotional connection to the characters is amazing. Um, but also made me realise uh, how different, actually, Cloud Street is to Ruth Park, that it's uh, Ruth Park is making an amazing sort of dissection of the domestic in this in, uh, in Surrey Hills in Sydney uh, at the first start of the 20th century as for Tim Winter is writing often more about the epic and landscape and it's uh, that even though Cloud Street is all set within a house, it's sort of biggest uh, gestures are things that happen bursting out of that house. So why program uh, Cloud Street as kind of the, I guess, the anchor mm. in some ways of the, the 2019 season? It's, uh, it is, I think many people would consider it the great Australian <laughs> novel or certainly yeah. one of the great Australian novels uh, and it's Known in theatre in theatre circles as an epic piece of work. So, but why put it in? Is it is one of the things I, I that I thought about when I, uh, the programming was announced was the way that works become canonical is by remounting, retelling, reinterrogating them. Mm. And certainly this is an, a new interrogation of Cloud Street as much as a new production of it. Absolutely. It is a new interrogation in the sense that, um, well, we're using most of the same script. So uh, there was a script written 
adapted from um, from the novel 20 years ago by Nick Enright and Justin Monjo. But we are going back and making some new adjustments to that adaption, drawing different parts of the novel out because I think part of the... Well, I think one of the reasons we tell the story Cloud Street now is because it is a story about living with ghosts. It is a story about trying to carry the past with you in the present and how to learn from that, how to see it more effectively. Um, it's also a big story about a f- families and communities that come are forced together, that don't want to live together, that come to a forced continent and build up barriers uh, in their houses, in their communities, uh, that then take 20 years to be pulled down again. So there's, I think there's something very political, there's a political undercurrent going through um, uh, Tim's writing uh, and, of course, a very spiritual idea going through all the Tim ri- Tim's writing. But I think in theatrically we can go back and look at that by elevating uh, voices and ideas that were... Uh, uh, you know, not marginalised, but we're not seen... sidelined. Perhaps, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, there's, you know, of course, one of the big things is that a central character is uh, Fish Lamb, who has uh, acquired brain injury, you know, in the novel. And so um, we've cast, you know, an amazing young performer called Ben Oakes uh, with an intellectual disability who'll be bringing Fish to life, which brings a whole different dimension to that character. Um, it's cast with uh, five Indigenous actors that create a whole different uh, lens to the history of the house in Cloud Street. It is an Indigenous orphanage that before the lambs and the pickles move in. Um, And as a theatre work, you can create that history on stage uh, in a different way to the novel. In many, in many ways, that history can haunt the stage uh, in a way that's difficult to do when you're reading it. Speaking of haunting, uh, Wake in Fright mm. is uh, also in the 2019 season, which is one of the the most grotesque and compelling evocations of the Australian Gothic and a very different evocation of the Australian Gothic uh, when you compare it, say, to an earlier Malthouse production like Picnic at Hanging Rock. There are connecting threads, but a very different play. There are threads, and this is also a thread for next year about horror. There's, this, you know, there's two shows that definitely, and Cloud, Awake and Front is one of them where we want, we'd like to see the audience um, certainly have a lot of adrenaline and maybe even scream out loud once or twice if we can pull it off. Well, you've, you've pulled it off before. <laughs> That's so. right. We've, we're learning from our past experiences. Um, but Wake and Fright, yeah, I mean, it's an incredible, terrifying story of sort of toxic masculinity. I think, and when we get into the Yabba and that town where everyone is sort of just have a few more drinks and everything will be fine Uh, and the English teacher who can't escape that town um, once he enters it um, is a horror story. Um, But I think what's very exciting here is that Declan Green is creating it with Zara Newman and Zara Newman is going to play all the roles. So um, it's a solo show for her. She actually has an incredible gift for um, mimicking Ocker Australian men. Uh, So she'll be channelling everyone in the Yabba. Um, And it's very much uh, a piece of like campfire horror storytelling where it will be scored with constant music. So um, local group friendships are creating a score that lasts an hour or an hour and ten minutes and it's almost like a radio play where um, Sarah's, you know, head floating in the dark, you know, scaring us all with the story of the Yabba. I'm looking forward to experiencing that. Um, some works that have been programmed next year I've already experienced. Mm. Uh, Barbara and the Camp Dogs, which I saw uh, uh, at Belvoir last, last year. year. Yes. Uh, 
and you're also then, as well as bringing that in, you're remounting uh, Blackie Blackie Brown, the traditional owner of death, which had a kind of extended and wildly successful season this year. Well, we yeah, it was enormous. We um, had people sort of arguing in the foyer um, to get spared, you know, to try and be let in when there were no more seats left. So I think uh, Nikia Louie's sort of live animation, exploitation <laughs> comic book on stage, Blackie Blackie Brown about the um, superhero who... Uh, tracks down all the you know all the white descendants um, of that killed her family in the past. Um, uh, look, I think it taps into at the moment you know uh, an anger and a wanting to sort of find you know a way to take tangible action for what happened in the past. Um, and also, I think it's just really important that new Australian plays when they're have great successes that they don't disappear quickly. There's, you know, it's building a repertoire. More people want to see Blackie Blackie Brown. There's a lot of people that I think want to see it again. I and happily see it again. Exactly. And <laughs> Partially because I think the night I saw it, there was a technical glitch. Oh, right. We had, we had an <laughs> unexpected interval and that's the risk you take when it, with a show with so much kind of projection and animation that is part of it. That, that night the computer overloaded. They, they did that dangerous thing of making a few little changes before the audience walked in and, um, yeah, the computer just couldn't handle it. But um, ex- exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, that's one of the things with theatre. It's not like uh, a film that you can download and watch again when it's your favourite film. So this is a, becoming a favourite play and a favourite production and I think people want to see it again. So we will provide that opportunity. Well, tapping into what I said about Cloud Street, that notion of building a canon, you do it... Uh, and I think you said this over, over a, a glass of wine, that a canon is only constructed when we retell stories. Yes. No, absolutely. I think if the story becomes fixed, I think it no longer can... It's no longer alive in many ways. I think it needs to be. I mean, I'm sure Blacky Blacky Brown will feel... I mean, it'll be interesting, even though the production won't change radically, it will probably resonate differently, depending on, you know, what the politics and the, what's the conversation in the community at the time it's performed. Uh, and Barbara and the Camp Dogs, which we uh, referenced earlier, a Belvoir production that uh, you're staging in Melbourne. Uh, another story about, uh, from Indigenous perspectives, but with a, a kind of uh, sticky carpet pub vibe, which is... A challenging thing to make in a theatre in some ways. It, it, it is. I mean, this is one of my... was one of the things I was drawn towards um, because the two performances of Elaine Crombie and Ursula Jovic, so extraordinary, but they, the idea is that the production starts in a sort of sticky pub venue where they're performing their gigs and they're singing these incredibly powerful, beautiful songs. Uh, but the um, Stephen Curtis and Letitia Serrera's always have considered, um, wanted to create a theatre space that felt like that pub. Uh, so in Belfast Street when I was in Sydney, the sort of stage, uh, the, you know, the, the stage itself was turned into a pub and you could sit on stage. But, but at the Merlin, because we've got a slightly more flexible theatre in Melbourne, uh, we'll be able to build that sort of whole pub in many ways and a lot more of the audience will be able to sit up on stage, I hope. And so it should be, feel like a, you know, a mildly immersive experience for those at the Mer- in, um, in Melbourne at the Malthouse. If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with Matthew Lutton the Artistic Director and Co-CEO of Malthouse Theatre Company. We're chatting about the recently launched 2019 season. You can find out full details about the season at malthousetheatre.com.au. There's obviously some of the works we've talked about. There's a, a political 
thread running through them, whether it's overt in the case of blacky, blacky brown or whether it's um, uh, kind of a more subtle acknowledgement of the fact that living in Australia means making political choices in terms of how you live and how you deal with the past and so forth. That kind of political thread also connects the very first work in the season in 2019, the Ars Nova production of Underground Railroad Game. Yes, I mean, this is probably... Uh, it's quite a, product, a pro- provocative production to open our year with. Um, it's a piece that comes over from America, um, created by Scott and Jennifer, and uh, this has been touring around the world and is a piece about race relations and power. Uh, it starts with the premise of... Uh, to school teachers uh, welcoming you. It's going to be slightly immersive. You get in- entered into a primary school uh, school room and they're going to do a class about slavery uh, and talk about the Underground Railroad game in the history of American slavery. Um, well, underground railroad system, um, and uh, from there it starts to unpack the lives of the school teachers themselves and how their uh, relationship uh, plays out the sort of cycles of trauma from the past. Uh, it's got a lot of humour in it, though, uh, and it goes into some of the most incredibly dangerous sort of um, territory I've ever seen on stage. So it's um, it's a very memorable but sort of uh, yeah provocative and slightly acidic sort of unpacking of race relations. And even though it comes from an American context, I think there's something about it's not a parallel direct parallel to what's happening in australia but it's sort of opening up of conversations that's happening around the world really in the same way that uh nakia louis adaptation of the octoroon for queensland theater a couple of years ago did exactly the same kind of thing taking that america an american work with the with deep roots in the american social and, and political scene and going well let's adapt it to an australian context yes. and, and explore it that con- conversation in a local way so, yes yeah um another international work that you've got next year. Uh, you're working with Pan Pan Theatre from Ireland with The Temple, but an Australian cast, but Irish director and production. Yes, so we've got a trend at the moment of usually having one guest director coming over and joining us. Um, like uh, previously we had um, uh, Wang Chong come over from China um, and we had Belarus Free Theatre. This year and next year Gavin Quinn from Pan Pan is coming over and Gavin's got a very long history with Pan Pan of devising new work. Um, and so in many ways he asked us, when we we were interested in Gavin. We basically collected five um, very funny, <laughs> extraordinary theatre makers from Melbourne. So Nicola Gunn, Ash Flanders, Mish Grigor, um, Algin Albello, and Marcus McKenzie, and put them all in a room together. Um, and initially, uh, Gavin's sort of prov- provocation to them was the idea of the importance of being earnest as an Irishman. He brought this Irish play. Uh, and of course, the importance of being earnest is all about mistaken identity. Um, and so they started to improvise and create this piece called The Temple, which is about all five of them visiting a cult called The Temple where you develop a new identity. You get to go and uh, pretend to be someone else for a weekend uh, and they try to set up a utopia that will solve all the problems that they see socially out in the world and, of course, their, their utopia is very difficult to maintain uh, and incredibly funny. Um, but they've been... Uh, it's a bit of a mashup. I don't really know exactly how they're going to pull the whole show together yet but I'm excited by those five people coming into a room together and they're competing to be who will be the funniest most of the time. Um, and between Ash Flanders and Nicola Gunn, that's a um, difficult competition. <laughs> that would be uh, fun to be a fly in the wall of. Uh, there's a range of other works in uh, the Malthouse 2019 season as well, including uh, new Australian work. Uh, we've got the uh, uh, return of uh, Meow Meow as yes. well, for example. But uh, I did want to talk about My Dear Worthy Darling, which is mm. uh, a new work 
directed and designed by The Rabble and written by my friend and colleague Alison Crogan, who yes. many people would know as a poet or a critic or a writer of, of uh, epic fantasy. But uh, here she's she's written libretto in the past for opera, but here she's now writing theatre for the stage, which she's done some of in the past, but yeah. certainly it's not what she's best known for. And I'm really intrigued by the idea of the collaboration between Alison and The Rabble. Well, it, I think this piece in some ways came out from a conversation between Alison and The Rabble, like obviously The Rabble being incredibly visual theatre makers. I mean, they've, they've never actually worked with a, a playtext before. Um, they usually take a story and, you know, uh, design the text, but they approached Alison and were asking her whether you know she would write a poetic text that comes from her background in poetry. Um, and this is sort of, and Alison wrote this text um, during a residency um, in in France. And uh, she's always had a deep interest in medieval female mystics. Um, she's actually written a lot about one of the, um, the earliest mystics, one of the earliest mystic uh, who wrote pops, uh, probably one of the first female autobiographies, um, and about. Her her visions. And so she's created this piece, a text that is looking at a contemporary woman uh, who is having visions about how to escape a quite a claustrophobic uh, violent relationship and the a mystic back in the medieval era that's also having these visions about how to escape the patriarchy and that in that there starts to be a blurring between the 14th century and today and about this collection of voices lifting out of uh, patriarchy. And so... I think the rabble are probably the best people in town to create a work that has to be 14th century and contemporary and capture that dreamscape. Um, so I'm pretty excited to see an epic piece emerge from it. I'm also excited to see a new piece by Zoe Dawson, mm. uh, which is instead of, I don't know, blurring uh, kind of the, the Middle Ages and the modern day, it's blurring class boundaries instead. Uh, a new work called Australian Realness, which <laughs> is set at Christmas, but you're staging it in August. Yeah, that is true. It is. We um, we had two Christmas shows. We had Meow Meow's Christmas show and this Christmas one. But I think this is less focusing on Christmas and more on... Uh, well, I mean, in many ways, Zoe, what Zoe's doing is trying to start with a cliché. Like, she's starting with the Australian family in the late 90s gathering for a Christmas and, of course, there's a family secret, you know, and the son's probably got a drug habit and the daughter's trying to, you know, his career at university, his career is going downhill. So she sets up a bourgeois family... That's very familiar to us and all the tropes. Uh, and then she set, sets up that the fact that the family's struggling financially, that they've come up with this idea to rent their shed out to a group of bogans out the back to bring in some extra income. And the theatrical trick of that she writes very early on is that the five actors playing the bourgeois family have to also play the five actors in the bogan family. So there becomes this farce of constantly trying to swap characters. And that's where the piece really becomes unique because as uh, the Christmas party becomes uh, very nightmarish and the characters start to blur and you don't know, literally as the lights are going on and off, you don't know which character they're playing. And that's also the piece starts to then travel through time and starts to arrive at 2018-2019 where she's asking questions about whether those class distinctions from the 90s are, are relevant anymore and whether they actually have survived and are they social, are they economical um, and do we need to rethink the way we define class. There are other events in the Malthouse 2019 season that we have run out of time to talk about. It's uh, a packed and intriguing program and uh, you can find out more malthousetheatre.com.au or pick a, a copy of the season brochure at your usual bookshop, cafe, uh, etc. around town. I'm 
definitely intrigued to sink my teeth into some of these shows and explore what's on the stages at Malthouse Theatre Company in 2019. I've been chatting with Artistic Director and Co-CEO Matthew Lutton. Matt, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Right now, though, we're going to talk dance. The Melbourne International Arts Festival is on, as you'd know if uh, you've been listening to this program for the last couple of weeks, or indeed if you've uh, been looking at banners around town or going out and seeing shows. One of the works in the festival program uh, is A Quiet Evening of Dance, created by the choreographer William Forsyth, one of the like leading choreographers of his generation, and a man who... Has a, I, I would describe perhaps as a restless imagination when it comes to making new dance work. For A Quiet Evening of Dance, for example, in some of the work, he has stripped away the music to make it quiet. He's also brought in uh, a b-boy by the name of Ralph Yasset, who uh, also goes by the name of Rubber Legs, uh, who is performing alongside ballet dancers. And uh, Ralph joins us in the studio now. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. Very great pleasure. So you're based in Berlin, I understand. Is that where you met William Forsyth? Because I know he was living there until a couple of years ago when he relocated back to the States. Actually, I was born and raised in Germany, but moved to Los Angeles three years ago where we met. We met in Los Angeles, yeah. Okay. So what's it like as a somebody who, from uh, a kind of a background in hip-hop breaking as, and as a b-boy, being asked to, to dance and perform alongside ballet dancers who I presume have a very, very different kind of training style and preparation style, let alone dance style? Especially on the level of these dancers and from William Fawcett. Yeah, it's been, um, it's been a beautiful experience. Um so much work i've just been overwhelmed with everything but i'm super grateful for the opportunity and to have the chance to dive in to ballet especially i mean mean, with william Forsyth, it's been the best introduction ever and um, i'm super excited for the future to see you know what what i can mix with ballet breaking hip-hop, and see what else I can come up with. Were you nervous about beginning the, 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 this kind of process of collaboration, giving, given that ballet and hip-hop are in some ways worlds apart? It's an, an interesting question. I was so excited. Um, the closer I got to rehearsal, I was trying to think, what are we actually going to do? I didn't know what we were going to do. So I couldn't really prepare um, but then I closer got to the rehearsal, I got super nervous. And the, the first day in rehearsal, I was like, oh, it's, it's happening. Um, there's a lot to learn. You know, this is not some place where I can just come and do whatever I want. I have to learn a new language. So I had to be focused 100%. And I got nervous every day, every morning, throughout the whole day. Um, just I cared so much, you know, I wanted to show my respect that I really wanted to be here and that I also appreciate to be there. As well as showing respect, did you also want to show what you and your art form can do to, to show uh, dancers trained in a, in a very different kind of vocabulary and movement style that your, your art is nothing to be, to be brushed off lightly, it's just as significant and demanding as ballet? 
Yes, yes, of course. But I was also super interested in in getting all this information and know where can this go. I I performed my style for 20 years now. Um, it's not like I'm tired of it, but I'm ready for something new. So I was holding back on my own work and just wanting this information. I wanted this information. And yeah. You said you had to learn a, a, a whole new language, and yeah. by that you mean a new dance language, a new movement form and movement style. Talk to us about about encountering that and and learning to to speak that that movement. I'm a self-taught dancer. Um, I started breaking 20 years ago. That's what I've been doing all my life now, and I've never really worked with someone who's from ballet. And they've all worked together for so long and they have terms for everything. And in hip-hop, it's because we generate our own movement. Sometimes there's no words for certain things. So you come up with your own word. And I realized in the, in, in the rehearsal that they had a term for everything. They could literally communicate by just making a choreography up by words, which I, it, would be, it would be impossible for me. And so that combined with learning the actual step was a whole nother level for me. It was it, it, incredible. It's been... I, I can't find the right words for it. <laughs> now, the ballet historian, uh, Jellifer Homand, uh, published, uh, I think, in 2010, um, she, uh, I think, shocked the dance world by saying, after years of trying to convince myself otherwise, I now feel sure that ballet is dying. So she thinks it's become a stagnant art. I would imagine that kind of uh, William Forsyth and this particular work, A Quiet Evening of Dance, very much demonstrate that ballet is still alive because of all the, the influences and the ideas that William Forsyth is bringing to the art form. Oh, oh, totally. It's, it's not dying. It's, it's what you make out of it. I mean, what can ballet be? Um, I mean, now I learned some. I'm for sure going to use it and try to take it to a different level. Um, it's always so... It's, in, it's the exact same in breaking, too. It's, you learn the fundamentals, but then you're supposed to take them to a different level. It's in any type of art form. You, you learn... I mean, you can... In painting, too, you can learn... You draw a circle, a square, and it's how you compose them, right? Um... And I think the ex it's the exact same in, in ballet. I'm super excited to be able to dive in and then there's no rules. You can take it anywhere. And this is what I think is so exciting. And that's what breaking is about. You know, it's, um, there's no rules. It's For audiences uh, here in Melbourne who are coming along to see uh, A Quiet Evening of Dance, what can they expect to see in terms of the fusion of... Uh, breaking and ballet. I mean, first of all, there's you. There's from anyone, someone who doesn't understand dance, and someone who is an expert in dance. There's something for everyone. Um, and I think that um, the way William Forsyth introduces you to dance is is amazing. No one else can do it this way. Um, you will see counterpoint, musicality, to Baroque music. Um, this is something for everyone. 
including yourself, and as I said, your uh, the the kind of name that you earned in as a as a b boy rubber legs. Yeah. Um, why that name? Kind of somebody who said that you can put your foot in your armpit, for example. Or it wasn't like that from the very beginning. I wasn't flexible at all. But with, when I was fourteen, I was in a lotus position, and uh, my mentor back then just decided to call me rubber legs, and I hated that name. But then he passed away a few years later, and I, it's impossible to get rid of the name. So I said, you know what? I just make sure I live up to that name now. And um, just worked, stretched, created movement, morning till night. And I can't, I'm so grateful for the name. It, it's, I don't even have to explain what I do. So often people know exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> And just speaks volumes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, I've heard it said that uh, somebody described your dance style as uh, pushing street dancing in a darker, more mature way. What do they mean by that description? Whew. <laughs> um, I, 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 I don't know. It's, I, can, I can tell you a little bit about my style. It's a mixture of breaking yoga, contemporary, and now ballet. Um, it's very experimental. But how can I I, I... I don't understand why darker, maybe... Yeah, I, I don't understand why I would use the word darker. Oh, well. um, but it's, it's constantly evolving. I'm always trying to push the limits of dance. I want to show that not everything has been done already. I, I know a lot of dancers say, oh, everything has been done, but it's not true. There's actually people out there every day trying to create new tools, trying to create new movements, trying to, that are inspired by other artists, musicians, painters. Um, technology evolves, so therefore dance evolves too. And this is my biggest motivation and inspiration is to create something that hasn't been done before. And um, a lot of, in, in breaking, the, the b-boys would call me an abstract b-boy. So this is how I would how would I would describe my style as an abstract abstract b-boy. Has it been challenging to make that kind of abstract style work w- with ballet, given that ballet is kind of rigorous and coded kind of hand movements and gestures? The the kind of grid that ballet dancers work within is everything is is kind of formalized. So has it been has it been difficult to to fit into that formalized world? Actually, it's the exact opposite. There were so many similarities. Um, I was so surprised. So it's, 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 it's interesting to see. I've, I've invited a few hip-hop dancers to the premiere in Sadler's Worlds a few weeks ago, and um, they're hip-hop dancers. They know my style, but they, after the show, they told me that hip-hop and ballet is the exact same. And that's why I think everyone needs to come see the show. It's interesting how... It's so familiar. It's it's so similar. If you strip it down to the very different fundamentals, both dances, sometimes it's the exact same step. It's just your posture is slightly different. Your head has a different relationship to your feet. But it's it's super minimal. So it it's all it's all the same. 
in my opinion. What I've been reading from those very new reviews from uh, from its season uh, at Settlers Wells just recently, um, the use of music in it, or the, the, the non-use of music as well, the fact that there are literally moments of quiet and silence, there's birdsong, it feels like a very subdued, cerebral, kind of abstract but very focused mm-hmm. piece of work as well. So... Uh, are you aware of how focused and intent the audiences are watching it when you're performing? Yes. It's, it's, you can, even though you can't hear the audience, you can feel the energy. You have to be focused. And it's, it's very intimidating for me as a dancer too. But it, it, what is so interesting is there's, you can't use any tricks. You just have to use dance to communicate. There's no projections, there's no music. It's just dance. And I think it's, uh, it's, I think it's beautiful to experience. Usually in a very big theater, you expect loud music and a lot of people moving around and jumping around, but it's the exact opposite here. It's you, you see two dancers walk on stage and just use the body and you hear them breathe. It's, it's special. It's very special. And just be able to, to, to execute that on that level is you have to be a genius for that. Not, not everyone can do it. A Quiet Evening of Dance, uh, created by the choreographer William Forsyth, is on at Art Centre Melbourne, presented as part of the Melbourne International Arts Festival. I haven't seen it yet. I'm seeing it on Friday night. I'm really looking forward to the experience. Uh, and I've very much enjoyed the experience of speaking with Ralph Yesset. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> about the Melbourne International Arts Festival is that it brings work from around the country, new Australian work that uh, might otherwise not be seen in Melbourne sometimes. So, for example, at this year's festival, we've had My Name is Jimmy from Queensland Theatre and Prize Fighter by La Boite Theatre Company, both works from Brisbane that were brought down and are presented and Prizefighter is still on and you should totally go and see it. Um, But it's also an opportunity for new works to premiere in Melbourne, sometimes made by local companies, sometimes, in the case of A Ghost in My Suitcase, made by Western Australian company Barking Gecko Theatre, who made the superb Bambit's Book of Lost Stories, which some of you may have seen at Art Centre Melbourne, I think, about last year. Gorgeous, gorgeous work for children and families, which reduced adults to floods of tears and made resilient children looking, looking at, look at their parents somewhat curiously, wondering why kind of dad or mum or, or whoever was sobbing quietly in the theatre. Um, a Ghost in My Suitcase uh, is the work we're going to talk about now. Uh, it's having its world premiere here in Melbourne for Melbourne International Arts Festival after, a, I believe, a soft launch over in WA where uh, children got to see it uh, to help fine-tune the work. I'm joined in the studio now by co-director of A Ghost in My Suitcase, Felix Ching Ho. Welcome. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. And Gabrielle Wong, who wrote the book that the play is based on. Gabrielle, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you also for having me. So let's talk. How did this process begin? Did uh, who, who pitched the idea of the adaptation to Barking Gecko or did Barking Gecko come to you and kind of uh, co-director uh, Matt Edgerton? How did it begin? The story began like this. So my co-director, also the artistic director of Barking Gecko Theatre, um, Matt, Matthew Edgerton, Matt Edgerton, um, he found this book, Gabby's book, and then he just basically fall enough in first sight um, to um, 
and then to he just found that this is a story um, full of potential um, to put as an adaptation for children, and that's how it started. And then so Matt and I met back to 2016 at APAM. So at that time he was looking at collaborators to work with him on the project. Um, that's how it started, and that's back in 2016, April. Oh no, March. So, and obviously it started even earlier, Gabrielle, when you wrote uh, the book um, that this production is based on, uh, which won the Aurealis Award for Best Children's Speculative Fiction in 2009. So when did the process of dreaming up this story begin for you? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I have to go right back probably to 2007, Um or even before that, when I didn't even know that I was ever going to write a story about it when I lived in China in the 80s. Um, that's probably, you know, I mean, imagination and creating is a very mysterious thing. So I'm sure it probably began right back then. But actually, I started writing it in 2007. And, um, yeah, that's where the, the dream started. Yeah. So it's the story of uh, a young girl who uh, travels to china to visit her grandmother and discovers um, her grandmother's unusual trade uh, uh, and line of work uh, and so it combines uh, fantasy and the supernatural mm. but it's also very much a, a story about uh, about family about kind of how children t relate to their parents to their grandparents and so forth as well so there's a Gabrielle, in terms of all the different elements of the story, had you ever expected that someone would approach you and say, we want to stage this as a work of theatre? Oh, no. But, you know, in my dreams only, um, it was just... I, I received a, an email from Matt Edgerton, um, the artistic director of Barking Gecko, and um, this was way back in 2016, and... Uh, and it was just like a dream come true. Just every author's dream is to have their book made into a movie or to a play. And I'm just one of those lucky ones. Why do you think that dream exists? Because surely authors should be happy with the book they have written sitting on the shelf rather than wanting it to, to be uh, kind of mutated into a different art form. Uh, that's true. Um, it is wonderful because part of the... It's a collaboration. Being a writer is a collaboration between the reader and the and the the author um, and so once that's out you just let it have its own life and and then you're on to your other projects you know your next book your next book your next book and um, just out of the blue sometimes this wonderful thing happens like a miracle and um, it comes into your life and then it has a, a new life and being on the stage is so different from actually being a book and um, I'm just you know I have seen it the the tech technical rehearsal I was just blown away by it all <laughs> it was just like yeah a magical dance actually Ching Ching talk to us about the challenges of adapting a book which features martial arts ghosts uh, and uh, I believe there's animation being used mm. to create it and so forth but it there must have been some significant challenges to overcome in adapting mm. the, the book for the stage. Mm. Gabby's book, I mean, A Girl's My Suitcase, it's, it's a story with very um, throw and uh, complex characters, which is, you know, the highlight of it. Um, also, with these many layers, not only culture, but spiritual world and a lot of... Um, um, you know, um, layers of self-discovery. So it's very epic. Um, challenge to adapt this work is to how to really um, able to pick on 
the highlight of the story at the same time, you know, live up to Gabby's rich imaginations, expectations, but at the same time make it a work for children. So um, looking at the length of the show, it's definitely um, a challenge to keep it 70 minutes, 75 minutes, so that it's a show for children and family. That's one challenge. Um, also, I think um, looking at our creative team, um, it's a story um, with such a rich uh, cultural knowledge with together with the imagination so we do spend time to go on a field research trip in china and really just to value the shared experience between gabby me co-director and creative to really look at okay that's what it is and how we can actually bring this experience into life to stage adaptations um that take a while so that's why we take three years into making and it's something that we should take time to really digest it and to share so i'm glad that um we are lucky enough to have you know this amount of time to make this work yeah um Gabrielle, let's talk about some of the, uh, the, I guess, the, the cultural aspects of the story, which are kind of specific in some ways to, to Chinese culture the, uh, around uh, ghost hunters, for example, uh, and kind of why you decided to weave that into a contemporary story. Um, well, who doesn't like a ghost story? Um, I do, for one. And um, with a ghost in my suitcase, with Chinese culture... Ghost stories are embedded in the culture. They've been there for, you know, thousands of years. And traditionally, you know, children, our families would read these stories. Um, I must say, though, that it is, you know, imagination meeting reality because even though ghost hunters and ghost hunting is a real art in China, a lot of it has been made up. You know, so um, I have to say that in the beginning because it's that's the joy about creating something that is based on sort of reality, but then you just bring in your own imagination, your own ghosts, your own ghost hunting weapons. A lot of those weapons were true, are real, but um, a lot of them also I have made up. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it was just a... Um, to also to bring in um, the culture of... Food. I love to bring in food to introduce new readers, readers who are not so um, knowledgeable about Chinese culture or Asian culture, to bring in food, um, to bring in a bit of Taoism, which is Chinese philosophy, which underpins a lot of my work, um, introduce that in a very soft and gentle way without being didactic, because Paw Paw, the grandmother in the novel, who's the the, the ace ghost hunter, she is sort of like Taoism herself and she, um, you know, flows, goes with the flow, which is sort of basically what Taoism is about. One of the reasons that I'm intrigued to see a ghost in my, my suitcase and I'm seeing it tonight is I love the fact that what is often called children's theatre is really uh, theatre for all ages. Uh, the themes of it uh, can be just as rich and provocative as anything kind of made for adults. And there's less pretense and pretension about it sometimes as well. It kind of it, sometimes it can just be more direct uh, and kind of and such a, a, a rich and passionate experience. But I'm also really intrigued because uh, as Hannah Francis, uh, the art editor of the age, noticed uh, uh, noted in the piece, she wrote about the production 
introduction. Um, uh, she says, in what perhaps shouldn't be such a rarity on our stages, the whole cast is Asian-Australian and the three main characters are women. Um, uh, the, the sheer fact that uh, theatre makers in this country, and, and particularly some of the larger companies, are finally starting to cotton on to the fact that they need to diversify the kind of stories they tell, not just the actors that they're casting in those stories, if we're to see theatre in Australia really evolve and reflect uh, the, the contemporary culture and the contemporary world we live in. It, it feels like this play is very much part of a push to, to evolve. Definitely, Richard. I think it's a big push as well. I think when it comes to, you know, the future of um, representation in the arts, I think one thing that's very important is really finding the right people to collaborate with. I think um, a Gossamaster case, you know, what's amazing about this production is that um, it's truly a very collaborative process between all the creative and the actors. We do have five amazing Asian Australian actors, but I have to say that... Um, uh, in the rehearsal room, you know, we work highly collaboratively together because they also come from a knowing and background that um, this story actually very close to their heart. So uh, we did, you know, really value all their input, um, even though how, you know, each character should move and small things like rhythm and pace. I mean, that's it's all kind of embedded with part of their skill. Um, and this story... It is one of, I think, you know, definitely have this urgency to tell now, um, not only for the representation of Asian artists on main stage, but also having a story like this one. Each of the characters, not only female, but also have this complexity in them. And that's what we want. And it's a source of story about migration. And, you know, Australia is that, you know, we are a country of migrants, except for our indigenous Australians. And so I think it's important... Um, you know, for children and for families to to see this, and to you know to value our immigration and how it's how it has formed Australia. Yeah, and knowing that um, you know the search for identity and belonging, it's part of their strength. It is a drive that take them into other path, and it's an inspirational path. A Ghost in My Suitcase uh, has been adapted and uh, is being staged by Barking Gecko Theatre as part of the Melbourne International Arts Festival and is opening tonight in the Playhouse uh, at Art Centre Melbourne and runs through until Sunday. Performances Thursday to Saturday at 7pm, Saturday and Sunday also at 1pm and tickets range from $39 to $59. It's suitable for ages 8 and up. And uh, if you've already read... Gabrielle's uh, A Ghost in My Suitcase, uh, then perhaps you uh, will need to pick up the, the sequel, uh, Ting Ting the Ghost Hunter. Any plans to adapt this for the stage as well? Um, I'm definitely someone who's waiting, just, you know, wait for the opening t- tonight, tonight and yeah. ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, you, you do have to see how the first production goes. But, uh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, Gabrielle, while you're here, what, what next? What are you writing next? Um, well, I'm, I'm an illustrator as well, so I'm working on a picture book um, for, for a Chinese publisher. Um, but I've been I just oh, in the car today. I was just thinking. I mean, I, you don't want. To, I don't want to talk about it because I might, you know, jinx it. Jinx it, yeah. But um, I think the next one is going to be. It will be perfect for the stage. I can see it. And it was an idea that Felix, that Ching Ching Ho gave me um, when we were having coffee one day. 
Oh, a, you know the new one. book. Yeah, a new ah. book. Yeah, and you children's novel. I love the way that uh, a book has been adapted and created for the stage, and now a stage uh, a theatre maker is, is perhaps inspiring the next book. Those kind of rich conversations uh, are what kind of uh, we need more of them. I've been chatting with Felix Ching Ching Ho, the co-director of the work, and author Gabrielle Wong. Thank you both so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you. Thank for you. Having us. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.